The Sleepy Bookshelf should have something for everyone. If we are missing your favourite story, you can vote for future books on our website, sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It's lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to Little Women. But before we open our book, take some time here for yourself to breathe and relax. Take a big stretch and release any tension you might be holding in your muscles. Focus on how your body feels and allow yourself to physically relax. Next, take a deep breath in and hold it for a moment. Then exhale, breathing out all your worries and concerns. Once more, inhale, hold it a moment, and exhale. Wonderful. Last time, Meg was getting ready to leave for a weekend with her wealthy friend, Annie Moffat. She had borrowed from her sisters and mended her own things in order to attempt to pack a wardrobe of the most fashionable outfits she could. She was grateful, but still felt jealous that she wouldn't have all the finery that her friends would. The Moffats quickly put her at ease, and she was having a lovely time until one evening when she had put on her shabby white dress for a party. Laurie had sent her flowers, which she had distributed, and was feeling quite comfortable when she overheard a conversation. Mrs. Moffat was gossiping to someone else, mentioning some plan of her mother's and the state of Meg's clothes. She went to bed feeling embarrassed, and ashamed. The next day, one of the Moffat girls offered to dress her up for the party that evening in one of her own dresses, which Meg allowed. When she was ready, she felt stunning, if a little uncomfortable in the tight dress and high heels. The family had invited Laurie to the party and he was so shocked when he saw her that he was quite rude toward her. He was disappointed, and this made Meg realize what a fool she had been. She spent the rest of the evening dancing, avoiding glory, and drinking champagne to numb her embarrassment. And that is where we pick our story back up tonight with Meg feeling the result of one too many glasses the night before. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 9 Meg Goes to Vanity Fair Continued Meg was sick all the next day and on Saturday went home quite used up with her fortnight's fun and feeling that she had sat in the lap of luxury long enough. It does seem pleasant to be quiet and not have company manners on all the time. Home is a nice place, though it isn't splendid, said Meg looking about her with a restful expression as she sat with her mother and Joe on the Sunday evening. I'm glad to hear you say so, dear, for I was afraid home would seem dull and poor to you after your fine quarters, replied her mother, who had given her many anxious looks that day, for motherly eyes are quick to see any change in children's faces. 
Meg had told her adventures happily and said over and over what a charming time she had had. Something still seemed to weigh upon her spirits, and when the younger girls were gone to bed, she sat thoughtfully, staring at the fire, saying little and looking worried. As the clock struck nine and Joe proposed bed, Meg suddenly left her chair and, taking Beth's stool, leaned her elbows on her mother's knee, saying bravely, Mommy, I want to fess. I thought so. What is it, dear? Shall I go away? asked Joe discreetly. Of course not. Don't I always tell you everything? I was ashamed to speak of it before the younger children, but I want you to know all the dreadful things I did at the Moffats, said Meg. We're prepared, said Mrs. March, smiling but looking a little anxious. I told you they dressed me up, but I didn't tell you that they powdered and squeezed and frizzled and made me look like a fashion plate. Lori thought I wasn't proper. I know he did, though he didn't say so, and one man called me a doll. I know it was silly, but they flattered me and said I was a beauty and quantities of nonsense. So I let them make a fool of me, Meg continued. Is that all? asked Joe as Mrs. March looked silently at the downcast face of her pretty daughter and couldn't find it in her heart to blame her little follies. No, I drank champagne and romped and tried to flirt and was altogether abominable, said Meg self-reproachfully. There is something more, I think and Mrs. March smooths the soft cheek, which suddenly grew rosy as Meg answered slowly. Yes, it's very silly, but I wanted to tell it, because I hate to have people say and think such things about us and Laurie. Then she told the various bits of gossip she had heard at the Moffats, and as she spoke, Joe saw her mother fold her lips tightly, as if ill-pleased that such ideas should be put into Meg's innocent mind. Well, if that isn't the greatest rubbish I've ever heard, said Joe indignantly, why didn't you pop out and tell them so on the spot? I couldn't. It was so embarrassing for me. I couldn't help hearing at first, and I was so angry and ashamed. I didn't remember that I ought to go away. Just wait till I see Annie Moffat, and I'll show you how to settle such ridiculous stuff. The idea of having plans and being kind to Laurie because he's rich and may marry us by and by. Won't he shout when I tell him what those silly things said about us poor children? And Joe laughed, as if on second thoughts the thing struck her as a good joke. If you tell Laurie, I'll never forgive you. She mustn't, must she, mother? said Meg, looking distressed. No, never repeat that foolish gossip and forget it as soon as you can, said Mrs. March gravely. I was very unwise to let you go among people of whom I know so little. Kind, I dare say, but worldly, ill-bred, and full of these vulgar ideas about young people. I'm more sorry than I can express for the mischief this visit may have done you, Meg. Don't be sorry. I won't let it hurt me. I'll forget all the bad and remember only the good for I did enjoy a great deal, and thank you very much for letting me go. I'll not be sentimental or dissatisfied, mother. I know I'm a silly girl, 
and I'll stay with you till I'm fit to take care of myself. It is nice to be praised and admired, and I can't help saying I like it, said Meg, looking half ashamed of the confession. That is perfectly natural and quite harmless if the liking does not become a passion and lead one to do foolish or unmaidenly things. Learn to know and value the praise which is worth having, and to excite the admiration of excellent people by being modest as well as pretty, Meg, said Mrs. March. Margaret sat thinking a moment while Jo stood with her hands behind her, looking both interested and a little perplexed, for it was a new thing to see Meg blushing and talking about admiration, lovers and things of that sort. Jo felt as if during that fortnight her sister had grown up amazingly and was drifting away from her into a world where she could not follow. Mother, do you have plans, as Mrs. Moffat said? Asked Meg bashfully. Yes, my dear, I have a great many. All mothers do. But mine differ somewhat from Mrs. Moffat's, I suspect. I will tell you some of them. For the time has come when a word may set this romantic little head and heart of yours right on a very serious subject. You are young, Meg, but not too young to understand me, and mother's lips are the fittest to speak of such things to girls like you. Joe, your turn will come in time, perhaps, so listen to my plans and help me carry them out if they are good. Joe went and sat on one arm of the chair, looking as if she thought they were about to join in some very solemn affair, holding a hand of each and watching the two young faces wistfully. Mrs. March said in her serious yet cheery way, I want my daughters to be beautiful, accomplished and good. To be admired, loved, and respected. To have a happy youth, to be well and wisely married, and to lead useful, pleasant lives with as little care and sorrow to try them as God sees fit to send. To be loved and chosen by a good man is the best and sweetest thing which can happen to a woman. I sincerely hope my girls know this beautiful experience. It is natural to think of it, Meg, right to hope and wait for it, and wise to prepare for it, so that when the happy time comes, you may feel ready for the duties and worthy of the joy. My dear girls, I'm ambitious for you, but not to have you make a dash in the world marry rich men merely because they are rich or have splendid houses, which are not homes, because love is wanting. Money is a needful and precious thing, and when well used, a noble thing. But I never want you to think it is the first or only prize to strive for. I'd rather see you poor men's wives if you are happy Beloved, contented, and queens on thrones without self-respect and peace. Oh, poor girls don't stand a chance, Belle says, unless they put themselves forward, sighed Meg. Then we will be old maids, said Joe stoutly. Right, Joe. Better be happy old maids than unhappy wives or unmaidenly girls running about to find husbands, said Mrs. March decidedly. Don't be troubled, Meg. Poverty seldom daunts a sincere lover. Some of the best and most honored women I know were poor girls. 
so love-worthy that they were not allowed to be old maids. Leave these things to time. Make this home happy, so that you may be fit for homes of your own if they are offered you, and contented here if they are not. One thing remember, my girls. Mother is always ready to be your confidant, father to be your friend, and both of us hope and trust that our daughters, whether married or single, will be the pride and comfort of our lives. We will, Mommy. We will, said Bo, with all their hearts, as she bade them good night. Chapter 10 The PC and PO As spring came on, a new set of amusements became the fashion, and the lengthening days gave long afternoons for work and play of all sorts. The garden had to be put in order. Each sister had a quarter of the little plot to do what she liked with, and the girls' tastes differed as much as their characters. Meg's had roses and heliotrope, myrtle, and a little orange tree in it. Joe's bed was never alike two seasons, for she was always trying experiments. This year, it was to be a plantation of sunflowers, the seeds of which cheerful and aspiring plant were to feed Aunt Cockletop and her family of chicks. Beth had old-fashioned fragrant flowers in her garden, sweet peas and mignonette, larkspur, pinks, pansies, and southernwood, with chickweed for the birds and catnip for the kittens. Amy had a bower in hers, rather small and earwiggy, but very pretty to look at, with honeysuckle and morning glories hanging their coloured horns and bells in graceful wreaths all over it. Tall, white lilies, delicate ferns, and as many brilliant, picturesque plants as would consent to blossom there. Gardening, walks, rows on the river, and flower hunts employed the fine days, and for rainy ones they had house diversions, some old, some new, all more or less original. One of these was the P.C., for as secret societies were the fashion, it was thought proper to have one, and as all the girls admired Dickens, they called themselves the Pickwick Club. With a few interruptions, they had kept this up for a year and met every Saturday evening in the big garret on which occasions the ceremonies were as follows. Three chairs were arranged in a row before a table on which was a lamp. Also, four white badges with a big PC in different colours on each and the weekly newspaper called the Pickwick Portfolio, to which all contributed something, while Joe, who reveled in pens and ink, was the editor. At seven o'clock, the four members ascended to the club room, tied their badges round their heads, and took their seats with great solemnity. Meg, as the eldest, was Samuel Pickwick. Joe, being of a literary turn, Augustus Snodgrass. Beth, because she was round and rosy, Tracy Tupman. And Amy, who was always trying to do what she couldn't, was Nathaniel Winkle. Pickwick, the president, read the paper, which was filled with the original tales, poetry, local news, funny advertisements, and hints 
in which they good-naturedly reminded each other of their faults and shortcomings. On one occasion, Mr. Pickwick put on a pair of spectacles without any glass, rapped upon the table, hemmed, and having stared hard at Mr. Snodgrass, who was tilting back in his chair till he arranged himself properly, began to read. The Pickwick Portfolio, May 20th, Poet's Corner, Anniversary Ode. Again we meet to celebrate with badge and solemn rite our 52nd anniversary in Pickwick Hall tonight. We are all here in perfect health, none gone from our small band. Again we see each well-known face and press each friendly hand. Our Pickwick always at his post, with reverence we greet, as spectacles on nose he reads our well-filled weekly sheet. Although he suffers from a cold, we joy to hear him speak, for words of wisdom from him fail in spite of croak or squeak. Old six-foot snodgrass looms on high with elephantine grace and beams upon the company with brown and jovial face. Poetic fire lights up his eye. He struggles against his lot. Behold ambition on his brow and on his nose a blot. Next, our peaceful Tupman comes, so rosy, plump, and sweet, who chokes with laughter at these puns and tumbles off his seat. Prim little Winkle, too, is here, with every hair in place, a model of propriety, though he hates to wash his face. The year is gone. We still unite to joke and laugh and read and tread the path of literature that doth to glory lead. Long may our paper prosper well, our club unbroken be, and coming years their blessings pour on the useful, good PC. A. Snodgrass The Masked Marriage, A Tale of Venice Gondola after gondola swept up to the marble steps and left its lovely load to swell the brilliant throng that filled the stately halls of Count Adelon. Knights and ladies, elves and pages, monks, and flower girls all mingled happily in the dance. Sweet voices and rich melody filled the air, and so, with mirth and music, the masquerade went on. Has your highness seen the Lady Viola tonight? asked a gallant troubadour of the fairy queen who floated down the hall upon his arm. Yes, is she not lovely, though so sad? Her dress is well chosen too, for in a week she weds Count Antonio, whom she passionately hates. By my faith I envy him. Yonder he comes, arrayed like a bridegroom, except the black mask. When that is off, we shall see how he regards the fair maid, whose heart he cannot win, though her stern father bestows her hand, returned the troubadour. Tis whispered that she loves the young English artist who haunts her steps, 
and is spurred by the old camp, said the lady as they joined the dance. The revel was at its height when a priest appeared and, withdrawing the young pair to an alcove hung with purple velvet, he motioned them to kneel. Instant silence fell on the throng, and not a sound but the dash of fountains or the rustle of orange groves sleeping in the moonlight broke the hush as Count Adelon spoke thus. My lords and ladies, pardon the ruse by which I have gathered you here to witness the marriage of my daughter. Father, we wait your services. All eyes turned toward the bridal party, and the murmur of amazement went through the throng, for neither bride nor groom removed their masks. Curiosity and wonder possessed all hearts, but respect restrained all tongues till the holy rite was over. Then, eager spectators gathered round the count, demanding an explanation. Gladly I would give it if I could, but I only know that it was the whim of my timid Viola, and I yielded to it. Now, my children, let the play end, Unmask and receive my blessing. But neither bent the knee, for the young bridegroom replied in a tone that startled all listeners as the mask fell, disclosing the noble face of Ferdinand Devereux, the artist lover, and leaning on the chest where now flashed the star of an English earl was the lovely Viola, radiant with joy and beauty. My lord, you scornfully bade me claim your daughter when I could boast as high a name and vast a fortune as the Count Antonio. I can do more, for even your ambitious soul cannot refuse the Earl of Davereux and de Vere when he gives his ancient name and boundless wealth in return for the beloved hand of this fair lady, now my wife. The Count stood like one changed to stone, and turning to the bewildered crowd, Ferdinand added with a smile of triumph, To you, my gallant friends, I can only wish that your wooing may prosper as mine has done, and that you may all win as fair a bride as I have by this masked marriage. S. Pickwick Why is the PC like the Tower of Babel? It's full of unruly members. The History of a Squash Once upon a time, a farmer planted a little seed in his garden, and after a while, it sprouted and became a vine and bore many squashes. One day in October, when they were ripe, he picked one and took it to market. A grocerman bought it and put it in his shop. That same morning, a little girl in a brown hat and a blue dress with a round face and snub nose went and bought it for her mother. She lugged it home, cut it up, and boiled it in the big pot, mashed some of it with salt and butter for dinner, and to the rest, she added a pint of milk two eggs, four spoons of sugar, nutmeg, and some crackers, put it in a deep dish, and baked it till it was brown and nice, and next day it was eaten by a family named 
March. T. Tupman. Mr. Pickwick, Sam, I address you upon the subject of sin the sinner. I mean is a man named Winkle who makes trouble in his club by laughing and sometimes won't write his piece in this fine paper. I hope you will pardon his badness and let him send a French fable because he can't write out of his head and he has so many lessons to do and no brains. In future, I will try to take time by the fetlock and prepare some work. All right, I am in haste as it is nearly school time. Yours respectfully, N. Winkle. The above is a manly and handsome acknowledgement of past misdemeanors. If our young friend studied punctuation, it would be well. A sad accident. On Friday last, we were startled by a violent shock in our basement, followed by cries of distress. On rushing in a body to the cellar, we discovered our beloved president prostrate upon the floor, having tripped and fallen while getting wood for domestic purposes. A perfect scene of ruin met our eyes, for in his fall, Mr. Pickwick had plunged his head and shoulders into a tub of water, upset a keg of soft soap under his manly form, and torn his garments badly. On being removed from this perilous situation, it was discovered that he had suffered no injury but several bruises, and we are happy to add, is now doing well. E.D. The Public Bereavement It is our painful duty to record the sudden and mysterious disappearance of our cherished friend, Mrs. Snowball Patpaw. This lovely and beloved cat was the pet of a large circle of warm and admiring friends, for her beauty attracted all eyes. Her graces and virtues endeared her to all hearts, and her loss is deeply felt by the whole community. When last seen, she was sitting at the gate, watching the butcher's cart, and it is feared that some villain, tempted by her charms, basely stole her. Weeks have passed, but no trace of her has been discovered, and we relinquish all hope, tie a black ribbon to her basket, set aside her dish, and weep for her as one lost to us forever. A sympathizing friend sends the following gem. A lament for S.B. Patpaw. We mourn the loss of our little pet and sigh over her hapless fate, for never more by the fire she'll sit, nor play by the old green gate. The little grave where her infant sleeps is neath the chestnut tree, but over her grave we may not weep, we know not where it be. Her empty bed, her idle ball, will never see her more. No gentle tap, no loving purr is heard at the parlor door. Another cat comes after her mice, a cat with a dirty face, but she does not hunt as our darling did nor play with her airy grace. Her stealthy paws tread the very hall where Snowball used to play, but she only spits at the dogs our pet so gallantly drove away. She is useful and mild and does her best, but she is not fair to see, and we cannot give her your place, dear nor worship her as we worship thee.
A.S. Advertisements Miss Oranthi Bluggage, the accomplished, strong-minded lecturer, will deliver her famous lecture on Woman and Her Position at Pickwick Hall next Saturday evening after the usual performances. A weekly meeting will be held at Kitchen Place to teach young ladies how to cook. Hannah Brown will preside and all are invited to attend. The Dustpan Society will meet on Wednesday next and parade in the upper story of the clubhouse. All members to appear in uniform and shoulder their brooms at nine precisely. Mrs. Beth Bouncer will open her new assortment of doll's millinery next week. The latest Paris fashions have arrived, and orders are respectfully solicited. A new play will appear at the Barnville Theatre in the course of a few weeks, which will surpass anything ever seen on the American stage. Constantine the Avenger is the name of this thrilling drama. Hints. If SP didn't use so much soap on his hands, he wouldn't always be late at breakfast. AS is requested not to whistle in the street. TT, please don't forget Amy's napkin. N.W. must not fret because his dress has not nine tucks. Weekly report. Meg, good. Joe, bad. Beth, very good. Amy, middling. As the president finished reading the paper, which I beg leave to assure my readers is a bona fide copy of one, written by bona fide girls once upon a time. A round of applause followed, and then Mr. Snodgrass rose to make a proposition. Mr. President and gentlemen, he began, assuming a parliamentary attitude and tone. I wish to propose the admission of a new member, one who highly deserves the honor, would be deeply grateful for it, and would add immensely to the spirit of the club, the literary value of the paper, and be no end jolly and nice. I propose Mr. Theodore Lawrence as an honorary member of the PC. Come now, do have him. Joe's sudden change of tone made the girls laugh but all looked rather anxious, and no one said a word as Snodgrass took his seat. We'll put it to a vote, said the president. All in favor of this motion, please to manifest it by saying, aye. A loud response from Snodgrass followed, to everybody's surprise, by a timid one from Beth. Contrary-minded say no. Meg and Amy were contrary-minded, and Mr. Winkle rose to say with great elegance, We do not wish any boys. They only joke and bounce about. This is a ladies' club, and we wish to be private and proper. I'm afraid he'll laugh at our paper and make fun of us afterwards observed Pickwick, pulling the little curl on her forehead as she always did when doubtful. Up rose Snodgrass, very much in earnest. Sir, I give you my word as a gentleman. Laurie won't do anything of the sort. He likes to write, and he'll give a tone to our contributions and keep us from being sentimental. Don't you see? We can do so little for him, and he does so much for us. I think it's the least we can do to offer him a place here and make him welcome if he comes. This artful allusion to benefits conferred brought Tupman to his feet 
looking as if he had quite made up his mind. Yes, we ought to do it, even if we are afraid. I say he may come, and his grandpa too, if he likes. This spirited burst from Beth electrified the club, and Joe left her seat to shake hands approvingly. Now then, vote again. Everybody remember, it's our lorry, and say, I, said Snodgrass excitedly. I, 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 replied three voices at once. God bless you. Now, as there's nothing like taking time by the fetlock, as Winkle characteristically observes, allow me to present the new member. And to the dismay of the rest of the club, Joe threw open the door of the closet and displayed Laurie, sitting on a rag bag, flushed and twinkling with suppressed laughter. You rogue! You traitor, Joe! How could you? said the three girls as Snodgrass led her friend triumphantly forth and producing both a chair and a badge installed him in a jiffy. The coolness of you two rascals is amazing, began Mr. Pickwick, trying to get up an awful frown and only succeeding in producing an amiable smile. But the new member was equal to the occasion, and rising with a grateful salutation to the chair, said in most engaging manner, Mr. President and ladies, I beg pardon, gentlemen, allow me to introduce myself as Sam Weller, the very humble servant of the club. Good, good, said Joe, pounding with the handle of the old warming pan on which she leaned. My faithful friend and noble patron, continued Laurie with a wave of the hand, who has so flatteringly presented me, is not to be blamed for the base stratagem of tonight. I planned it, and she only gave in after lots of teasing. Come now, don't lay it on yourself. You know I proposed the cupboard, broke in Snodgrass, who was enjoying the joke amazingly. Uh, Never mind what she says, I'm the wretch that did it, sir, said the new member with a Weller-esque nod to Mr. Pickwick. But on my honour, I never will do so again and henceforth devote myself to the interest of this immortal club. Hear, hear, said Joe, clashing the lid of the warming pan like a cymbal. Go on, go on, added Winkle and Tupman, while the president bowed benignly. I merely wish to say it is a slight token of my gratitude for the honor done me, and as means of promoting friendly relations between adjoining nations, I have set up a post office in the hedge in the lower corner of the garden, a fine spacious building with padlocks on the doors and every convenience for the males, also the females, if I may be allowed the expression. It's the old Martin house, but I've stopped up the door and made the roof open so it will hold all sorts of things and save our valuable time. Letters, manuscripts, books and bundles can be passed in there And as each nation has a key, it will be uncommonly nice, I fancy. Allow me to present the club key, and with many thanks for your favour, take my seat. Great applause as Mr. Weller deposited a little key on the table and subsided the warming pan clashing and waving wildly, and it was some time before order could be restored. 
A long discussion followed, and everyone came out surprising, for everyone did her best. So it was an unusually lively meeting, and did not adjourn till a late hour when it broke up with three cheers for the new member. No one ever regretted the admittance of Sam Weller for a more devoted, well-behaved, and jovial member no club could have. He certainly did add spirit to the meetings and a tone to the paper, for his orations convulsed his hearers and his contributions were excellent, being patriotic, classical, comical, or dramatic, but never sentimental. Joe regarded them as worthy of Bacon, Milton, or Shakespeare, and remodeled her own works with good effect, she thought. The P.O. was a capital little institution and flourished wonderfully for nearly as many strange things passed through it as through the real post office. Tragedies and cravats, poetry and pickles, garden seed and long letters, music and gingerbread, rubbers, invitations, scoldings, and puppies. The old gentleman liked the fun and amused himself by sending odd bundles, mysterious messages, and funny telegrams, and his gardener, who was smitten with Hannah's charms, actually sent a love letter to Joe's care. How they laughed when the secret came out, never dreaming how many love letters that little post office would hold in the years to come.